Welcome. Um, my name is Richard Hecht. I'm a uh, faculty member in the Department of Religious Studies. I know many of you here in the community. Uh, and of course, this is an event that is sponsored by the Herman P. and Sophia Taubman Foundation Endowed Symposia in Jewish Studies. Tonight's lecture is also sponsored by a number of other um, groups on campus and off campus. Uh, my own department, uh, Religious Studies, is one of the um, supporters of this event, along with the UCSB Hillel Foundation, the Interdisciplinary Humanities Center, and the UCSB Arts and Lectures. Um, and um, this, this is really amazing to be able to introduce this individual to you. Uh, before I do that, let me just point out that there are other events in the uh, Taubman Symposia that I hope you'll take advantage of. In, later in November, on the 20th, we're having Ruth Kluger, um, whose book, Still Alive, A Holocaust Girlhood Remembered, uh, was just reviewed in the uh, New York Review, uh, uh, in New York Times book review yesterday. Uh, and then in January, we're going to have two presentations, one by Arthur Green, who is one of the foremost experts in Jewish mystical traditions, uh, and also Tom Segev, um, who is uh, a journalist uh, uh, in Israel um, who has written extensively on the Holocaust, on uh, the state of Israel, uh, and most recently the new uh, Israeli history. So we hope we'll see you. And then in the spring, we're going to have Ruth Ellen Gruber uh, talking about uh, cyber culture and uh, of Eastern European Jewry here on campus. So I hope we'll see all of you. Um, tonight, um, this is a great honor. I've really wanted to have uh, Lawrence Schiffman here for many, many years. Um, I told him that I think we've known each other for well over 25 years. Professor Schiffman is the chairman of New York University's uh, Skirball Department of Hebrew and Judaic Studies and serves as the Ethel and Irwin A. Edelman Professor of Hebrew and Judaic Studies. Um, he told me that often many people recognize him when he's traveling because he's been on uh, a number of popular um, uh, television shows such as The Mysteries of the Bible, which appears on the Arts and Entertainment um, Network. Any of you see him on that? Professor Schiffman. Uh, I think some of us have. I have. Um, but his, um, it, it's arguably the case that the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947 is one of the most important um, discoveries related to the history of the Bible and the religion of the Jews uh, in late antiquity as well as early Christianity of the 20th century, if not perhaps much of the history of modernity. And there is no one, in my opinion, who can speak more authoritatively about the meanings of the Dead Sea Scrolls than Lawrence Schiffman. Let me point out to you that um, he has published extensively um, more than 150 
chapters, essays, and articles on the Dead Sea Scrolls. He has um, uh, been involved in every major project involving the scrolls for much of the past 25 years. And indeed, I think um, his book, uh, Reclaiming the Dead Sea Scrolls, which I brought my paperback copy in, um, the, their true meaning uh, for Judaism and Christianity is one of the very best books ever written about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, now, I, I, you know, I have this propensity to go on and on. Many of you have heard me give introductions, uh, and I promise you I'm not going to do that because it's much too important to hear Professor Schiffman uh, rather than me talk about all of his achievements. Um, so I want you to join me now in welcoming Lawrence H. Schiffman, who is going to speak to us on Scholars, Scrolls, and Scandals, Judaism, Christianity, and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Please welcome Professor Lawrence Schiffman. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I want to say, first of all, that I'm very appreciative of the wonderful introduction. And I guess I should thank all of you for coming, because when you go across the country, leaving the house at 5.30 AM, and you configure the extra three hours, et cetera, you like to know that someone cared and wanted to come, was interested in what you're talking about, and that someone cared to make known that you'd be here. So I thank all of you, and I'm honored to be here and honored that so many of you decided to come this evening. We might need to dim the lights a little, right? The story of the Dead Sea Scrolls, contrary to the way most people usually tell it, did not start with that rather famous Bedouin boy who went into the cave in 1947. It really started in the period of the late 1900s with the discovery of something called the Cairo Geniza. The Cairo Geniza was a storehouse of Hebrew manuscripts that came from the synagogue in Fustat in Old Cairo. And in the late 19th century, it had started to come, so to speak, into the academic world with these various fragmentary manuscripts. And it was Solomon Schechter in 1897 who went from Cambridge University to Cairo and brought back the rest of this whole enormous treasure trove of Hebrew manuscripts. Now in these manuscripts, Schechter found among them two particular manuscripts of a text that we now call the Fragments of a Tzadokite Work. It's also called the Damascus Document because virtually every Dead Sea Scroll has two names. In any case, this text existed in one fragmentary manuscript from the 8th or 9th century, and in another manuscript from the 9th or 10th. This document was published by Schechter in 1911. And this document actually, we now know, was one of the Dead Sea Scrolls preserved here in medieval manuscripts. Now, when this text was published, it set off the entire debate that we know of as the debate over the Dead Sea Scrolls. Initially, there were those who were convinced that these must be the documents of early Christians, that they must be the documents of the Pharisees, that sect of Jews who were the forerunner of the Talmudic rabbis, that they might be instead from the Sadducees, the high priestly group, or the Essenes, 
which of course are the group that most scholars do associate as the authors of the scrolls. And finally, it was even suggested that they might stem from a medieval group known as the Karaites, a literalist Jewish sect that came into existence in the eighth century. Now, this debate went on virtually uninterrupted in scholarly literature until the period, can we lower that spotlight on here? Until the period about the, uh, essentially almost the eve of the Holocaust. And at that point, the action shifted to this area over here, which is where you have the caves in the location we know of Qumran, which is not very far from Jerusalem, which is right over here. Now, of course, this is the place that is now so famous because it's here that at a place we now term Cave One at Qumran on the shore of the Dead Sea, that a Bedouin boy went into the cave and having entered the cave found these jars and in the jars wrapped in cloths were a series of scrolls known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, this event, of course, triggered the entire history of research in this field which is basically, for all intents and purposes, now something which is about 50 years old. Now, as soon as the scrolls were discovered, they came into the hands from the Bedouin who had found them of an antiquities dealer, shown here, named Kondo, with a friend of his whose name was, J oh, was uh, George Isaiah. Now, what happened was that this fellow got, of the original seven scrolls, they were divided essentially into two lots. And three scrolls went to Kondo, and uh, the other four went to this fellow here, Athanasius Samuel, who was the Syrian metropolitan, the head of the Syrian church in Jerusalem. Now, Athanasius Samuel would eventually sell his scrolls to Israel and then live happily ever after in Lodi, New Jersey, on the quarter of a million dollars that he got for it. Now, the lot in the hands of Kondo was sold to Professor Elazar Sukenik, who was the founder of the Institute of Archaeology at the Hebrew University, and he's the father of Yigael Yadin, whom we will meet in a second. Now, Sukenik got very lucky with the scrolls, because previous to the scrolls, he had had the opportunity to excavate the Beit Alpha Synagogue, which many people may have seen if they've been on a trip to Israel. This kibbutz in 1929 was digging a foundation for a dining room and they came upon a synagogue mosaic from like the 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th centuries. But in any case, after that, he was sort of sitting around waiting to see what he could do at his uh, newly found institute and got pretty lucky when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Now, Athanasius Samuel, as I mentioned to you, held on to his scrolls and attempted to market them for years in the United States until in 1954, Yigael Yadin, who would become Israel's leading archaeologist and also was very, very well known as a military commander during the 1948 war and later as an, uh, a, basically a kind of assistant prime minister under Menachem Begin. So Yadin was in Baltimore giving a series of lectures and a friend of his informed him that the Wall Street Journal had an ad that you could buy Dead Sea Scrolls for a quarter of a million dollars. And he then bought them for the state of Israel. So that by 1954, the seven original scrolls that had been discovered were in the hands of the state of Israel. All of those were quickly published, and they have absolutely nothing to do with the publication fight 
that you may remember from the 80s and early 90s and from all those accusations about the Dead Sea Scrolls not being published. Let me, by the way, point out right now before we go on that all of the Dead Sea Scrolls now are published in commentaries and editions of Hebrew text and English translation. There is nothing hidden nowhere, not by the State of Israel, not by the Vatican, not by anybody else, certainly not by me, and I have no scrolls in my pocket that haven't been published. Now, as soon as the dust settled from the 1948 War of Independence of Israel, the territory in which the scrolls had been discovered by Bedouin in 47, which had then been mandatory Palestine, the British mandate had controlled it since 1917 through 1948, it was now Jordanian territory. This is because the area that is usually called the West Bank or Judea and Samaria was occupied by Jordan during the 48 war and as I think everybody knows Jordan ruled that territory from 1948 to 1967. So it was the Jordanians who conducted a widespread search to find the place from which the scrolls had come. They soon found this area here, this dry riverbed called Wadi Qumran. You see the dry riverbed and overlooking it this is caves 4 and 5 of Qumran. In fact, cave 4 over here would yield about 550 manuscripts, but in fragmentary form. Those, in fact, are the manuscripts about which there was that big hullabaloo, because cave 4 was the material that, for the most part, was unpublished. But in any case, immediately after finding this site, they set about to investigate all types of other caves and soon organized archaeological excavations. Now, the interior of cave 4 is a very special type of a cave because it seems that there were holes around the outside of the cave and suspended from these holes were bookshelves of some kind. These rotted and fell to the ground sometime in ancient times, leaving the abandoned manuscripts that would all be found broken up in this cave under about a meter of a sort of combination of bat dung and sheep droppings and all kinds of other stuff that was found in there. But this is the cave that yielded the largest number of manuscripts. Now, Cave 11 is a very different type of a cave. This cave yielded some great scrolls. It yielded a psalm scroll that we'll be seeing. It yielded a temple scroll, a very important scroll. It also yielded an Aramaic translation, what's called a Targum of the Book of Job, and all types of other very interesting fragments. But I want to point out that this cave seems not to have been a storage cave for manuscripts, a kind of library, as was Cave 4. Cave 11, instead, seems to have been a place like Cave 1, in which manuscripts were thrown sometime close to the Roman attack in 68 CE. Because during the great revolt of the Jews against Rome in 66 to 73 CE, Qumran was sacked in approximately 68. Now, imagine what you do if you are the Jordanian government and Bedouin are finding large numbers of fragments of Hebrew manuscripts, selling them through this fellow, Kanda, who always served as the conduit for all of these manuscripts, excuse the bad pun, and these are finding their way to your museum and antiquities department. The only people they had in Jordan who knew Hebrew and could be appointed to work with this were primarily Christian clergymen who were there at various kinds of archaeological and other uh, movements. Sorry for that one. Okay, so you have over here Father Millick, who's now Mr. Millick, 
who published quite a lot of Dead Sea Scrolls, but had he been left alone, could have worked on them for 150 years. Father DeVoe, who was the excavator, very, very great scholar, excavated Qumran. You have over here Father Starkey, who never published any of his Dead Sea Scrolls, but was a great Aramaist. And a little piece of John Allegro, who was a Britisher, who was the first one to claim that the scrolls were really about Jesus and that they were being kept secret, all of which is completely false. But nonetheless, it makes very, very good news stories, sells books, and even looks good on TV. Now, you might get the impression from this that the whole team was Catholic. This is not true. For example, John Strugnell, whose back one sees here, was Protestant, but he actually converted to Catholicism. And then there was a uh, Protestant from Germany who withdrew from the project. And then there was, of course, the Protestant Allegro, who became an agnostic. So originally it was basically a group of Protestants and Catholics. For those who don't know, between 1948 and 1967, Jews were not allowed into Jordan. So there was no chance that any Jewish scholars would work on this. Now what they did was, and you see it right here, this is the so-called scriptorium, as we call it, the manuscript room in what is now the Rockefeller Museum, then known as the Palestine Archaeological Museum in Jordan. And they laid out all of the material into glass plates. Today, it's not glass plates. There are about 1,200 of these. We now have them in a type of rice paper plate, which uh, they were put into, to some extent, with the advice of the Getty Museum and other experts, together with the Israeli Antiquities Authority. Because, of course, after 1967, East Jerusalem was conquered by Israel, and they ended up controlling the scrolls. But these glass plates were used at that time. And the 1,200 plates made up approximately 850 documents. We now think that there are remnants of 900, which are the broken, crumpled 5%, 2%, 8% of what antiquity had, in fact, been complete scrolls and here could be better called Dead Sea Fragments than Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, while we're here, we should note the way they allowed them to be bathed in the sun, which of course nobody with any sense of preservation would do today. They stuck together the fragments of the jigsaw puzzle using cello tape, what we generally called scotch tape, or also, even worse, the little white papers that some of us are old enough to remember used to be around the edges of the postage stamps in the old days when you had to lick stamps. And they would lick this white gum and put it on the back. For this reason, the Israeli government, with the help of the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls Foundation, is today spending fortunes cleaning the scrolls in order to preserve them for the future. And the people who do that work, by the way, were trained in this field by working with papyri in Russia, two Russian Jewish women who had that skill from working with Greek papyri. But in any case, this material was all laid out here, and they started to edit it. Now, they immediately realized that it was necessary to go out to this site that we had seen called Qumran and to do excavations. And the excavations were primarily done by DeVoe, Millick, and this fellow, G. Lancaster Harding, who was a Britisher who stayed in Jordan to run the antiquities department after the British left in 48. So they began to excavate the site of Qumran, and I want to point to a few things that we are going to be looking at in a brief tour of the site. First of all, you have the extensive water system in gray, including the round cistern that we'll see, a variety of ritual baths that you see, and cisterns. And also, uh, you should note that there is the defensive tower over here, 
There is an assembly hall or dining room. There is a pantry and the so-called scriptorium, the room that they say they was used for preparing texts is over here. Just to give you a little sense, out here in the black is the cemetery that we'll see. The sea would be to my left of the screen, to your right. That would be, of course, the Dead Sea. And right over here, where they show, there's a gazebo there now, if you've been there. And right over here is the place where, where the uh, current compass map is on here. It's actually now a visitor center where, among other things, you can buy copies of my book for double or triple the price that you would pay if you bought it here. You can get tacky sweatshirts, which part of the Torah on them, emblazed in ancient Hebrew letters, and uh, mugs with the temple scroll, scarves, and other things like that. Okay. Now, this site has quite a long history. The round cistern as well as a lot of these walls here, are actually Iron Age period. That means that during the days of the Judean kings, primarily in the 8th and 7th centuries BCE, this site was used for defending the border of the country, basically as it faced the sea, literally, from which it could be invaded for the other side from the region of Moab. And of course, this view here is looking towards the cliffs. These cliffs were the ones in which the caves were located. These cliffs, of course, are to the west of the Qumran site, which lies between the cliffs and the, and the, uh, and the sea. Now, if you go to the other side, looking from the cliffs down, you will immediately be struck by this very, very big building, which is known generally as the defensive tower. Now, this building has given... Oh, go back, sorry. This building has given rise to a lot of very crazy theories. There uh, is one theory, you know, by the way, about the Dead Sea Scrolls, that there are a lot of what we call one-person theories. And there's this crazy idea in the press that every theory is created equal and that there's no such thing as fact. Now, I will tell you along the way, if I tell you something that's my opinion that isn't a fact. For example, this thus far, everything I told you is a fact. And these theories don't ever distinguish. And so it's like anybody can say anything and it doesn't make a difference. It's all equally true, which would seem to be the opposite of the way most people go about acquiring an education in the modern world. But that doesn't matter. So one of the theories claims that this defensive tower, instead of being a defense for the buildings that we're going to see in a few minutes, the theory claims that the purpose of this tower was that this was really a Roman fortress. And when you ask the people who say this, what the Roman soldiers would be doing with Jewish ritual baths, or why they would be buried with their feet facing Jerusalem to get up at the end of days, let alone why they put Jewish manuscripts into caves all over, they have no answer. Now, for the last question, they'll tell you that the caves have nothing to do with the manuscripts. Let me say right now that the archaeological dating, as well as certain unique types of pottery, indicate that the scrolls were put into the caves by people who lived in the buildings that we are beginning to see. So this defensive tower is exactly that. It is a tower which stood to two stories higher than the survival of the rest of the area, but not higher than the area was in antiquity. And what basically was the case was that those who lived here needed some type of a defensive area and guardhouse. Now, the entire place is built around a core. The core may have been a house that could go back to before the group that came there that we call the Qumran sect lived there. Now, if you look at this, you'll see that the door jams line up. 
And these pavements are remnants of what would have been beautiful pavements that would have been plastered in ancient times as the wall would have been plastered as well. And this may very well be a villa that could have been the core of this entire place. Because another crazy theory about this is that this also has nothing to do with religious sect. It's just a villa. How do we know it's a villa? Well, first of all, they found some expensive glass. And they make a kind of assumption that a religious sect would never have expensive glass, which, of course, is ridiculous. Just go into a monastery. I mean, you're not going to say such a thing as crazy about any monastery. They always have silver and stuff like that. Okay. And second of all, right, they then go on to claim that there were like 24 people living here. But the question is, if 24 were living there, what were they doing with the cemetery with 1,200 graves? And then why did they have hundreds of plates? So none of this really makes any sense. We have to accept the fact that we're dealing here with a site occupied by a Jewish sect that was a religious sect and practiced strict observance of Judaism. Now, we should recognize also that the chronology of the main part of the archaeological site runs from after 150 BCE through a destruction layer that most scholars identify with an earthquake in 31 BCE. That's a matter of debate. Through a destruction that takes place in 68 CE in the middle of the Jewish revolt against Rome. You will remember that the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem in 70 CE and that Masada, which was the last stronghold somewhat to the south of the area we're looking at now, was defeated and basically the revolt came to an end with its defeat in 73 CE. Now if we look at this site, we find that there is a large assembly hall which has a kind of stage in the front. And this assembly hall was really a dining room. We know it was a dining room because there was a pantry right next door. So you'll ask me, how do I know it's a pantry? It just looks like an empty room. But during the excavations, Millick found about 1,200 dishes, which included these eating plates. This is all the real stuff. This isn't some fake or from another site, right? Eating dishes as well as drinking goblets and cooking pots. But this pot was never used because it would be black on the bottom had it been used. And these stone vessels, and stone vessels were very, very popular in Jewish sites because stone vessels do not or are not susceptible to ritual impurity, which is a complicated problem in Jewish law, especially in sectarian groups that, like these people, were so strict about the observance of these purity regulations. Some of you may remember that there's some oblique reference in the New Testament to the impurity of cups, and that's all about this issue too the problem of the impurity or purity of vessels. So stone vessels are very popular. Now, one of the most important rooms that's been talked about here is the room here called the scriptorium. But actually, it's probably not this room. It's the room that was above it. Because the remnants of this writing room, this scriptorium, were found actually on top of remnants of what would be the ceiling of the first floor and the floor of the second floor. Now, the issue here is as follows. It's commonly thought that all of the scrolls were written someplace in this room or in this general sectarian center. This is manifestly false. First of all, some of the scrolls were copied even before this place was ever being used, before it was built. And also, we believe that the scrolls were composed and copied at various places in the country. And this accounts for all kinds of differences that are found when you investigate the biblical texts and other kinds of related issues. So let me give you a few dates. There is a rule, you're not supposed to give dates in a public lecture, but sometimes you just have no choice. Date of composition of the Dead Sea Scrolls, 
will range from, let's call it about the year 1000, because the earliest materials are biblical texts going way, way back. Running up through the turn of the era, what you could call the year zero, but there is no year zero, right? It goes from 1 BCE to 1 CE, so we can't use that term, but to the turn of the era. That's date of composition. Date of copying. Texts found in the Qumran collection were copied, a few in the third century BCE, a lot in the second and first centuries BCE, which means the two centuries before the rise of Christianity, and then a small number in the first century, early first century CE. And that accounts for the reason why Jesus, John the Baptist, or for that matter, we have to now mention, since they found his apparent ossuary, even if they broke it a day after finding it, James the Just, none of these people is mentioned in the Dead Sea Scrolls because the composition date of the scrolls is clearly before they were born or before their careers, whereas they may have been alive while some of the materials were being copied and while the sect was in existence, they were not alive when the scrolls were being composed. Now, the question about this room then is that some texts really may have been written in it because uh, there's no question the texts were copied in that area. Also, throughout the runes, there were found various coins. And these coins help us to date the site to its use from sometime around after 150 BCE, more accurately, maybe about 130 BCE, running, as I said, through that earthquake in 31 BCE and up through 68 CE. Now, to understand how a scriptorium might have worked, they have found remnants of what may have been benches around the outside. And here you see a sample from one of the rooms. And they've also found a few inkwells at Qumran. The problem is, though, that inkwells don't prove that texts were being reproduced someplace in large numbers. Because anywhere that anybody would write they would have to have inkwells. So we really deal here with circumstantial evidence as to whether this room really is the scriptorium. And even if it is, we do believe that many, many of the scrolls were imported to Qumran, having been copied elsewhere. Now I want to show you a little bit about the water system. People always want to know how would they have had sufficient water. There were these tunnels. This tunnel you can see is lined with limestone. And it was leading from the top of the hill all the way down to the site. You might have thought that they would get water by drawing it up from the wadi below. But that would have been a very exhausting process. And even worse, the wadi would only collect water the one or two times there were these massive rainstorms. So what they used to do is they would lead it from the top. These things are about 18, 20 inches high. And it runs up through an aqueduct. And then under the ground, there were capstones so that the plumbing was underground. And then running into a variety of installations. And I want to show you two ritual baths. These are typical Jewish ritual baths called mikvaot. They look the same until today. They would have been lined originally. You can see the remnants of the lining with limestone. They have steps leading down. Here's another one. They're very similar to ones that are still in use uh, in, in Jewish tradition today. And these need to be differentiated from these things here, which are really cisterns. And many people have argued that you can't tell the difference. In fact, some people have the crazy idea that the people would have bathed in the same water, that they laundered and cooked and drank, and they would have drunk the same water. But actually, as some public health person told me, if you did that, you might live the first year, but by the second year or the third year, you'd really basically uh, 
be in the other world as a result of this type of, uh, of practice. So I think it's not true. The baths were baths, and what you're looking at is a cistern. Now, this is not any cistern because it has a crack leading down from, I thought you were going to tell me it's not any cistern because the person in the picture on the top, and I have no idea who that is. Uh, the crack over here is a half meter crack, and that crack is believed to have happened in 31 BCE when the earthquake wreaked some destruction on the Qumran site, and there's other archaeological evidence of that destruction. These things would have been covered, and they would have provided sufficient water for a group of a few hundred people, which is what seems to have lived at the site, and we now have some evidence that they may have lived in tents surrounding the site, and some of them in caves. Now, we also know that there was a cemetery adjoining the Qumran site, going towards the water, from, that is to say, looking towards the west from the main building. Each pile of stones here is a grave. How do we know this? Because the Jordanians opened up 27 of them. In Israeli law, you're not allowed to excavate a cemetery. Now, the cemetery became a very big issue recently, and let me explain why. There is a major debate about whether or not the Dead Sea sect was celibate or not. And here I want to introduce you to one of the biggest problems we have in interpreting the scrolls, that we'll be getting to as we continue. And this is what I call the Christianization of the scrolls. For the obvious reason that there is a larger market of Christians and Jews, and because of some very unsophisticated sense of what Christians would understand about the history of their own faith, there was a tremendous effort to convince people that the people who wrote the scrolls and left the scrolls were really Christians. And therefore, there was a tremendous effort to interpret the scrolls in light of the New Testament. And since it was believed that the early church was celibate, it was assumed that the scroll sect was celibate. Now, this is not a totally far-out idea, because Josephus, in discussing the Essene sect, that many scholars believed to have been identical with the Qumran sect, said that there were two types of Essenes, marrying, and those who had left their wives and children to go off and who effectively were, we might say, post-maritally celibate. Now, as a result of this, they started to claim that the Dead Sea sect was celibate. Now, there's one particular major text that we'll be discussing called the Rule of the Community or the Manual of Discipline. And it does not mention women. And it's a basic outline of the sect's way of life. So they said, ah, here we can see they must have been celibate. That's why women are not mentioned. Uh, I don't know if you know that there's a very, very important document that also doesn't mention women, and that's the U.S. Constitution. And I don't think that the people who wrote that expected the country to be celibate. But nonetheless, uh, this assumption was made. Now, we now know that texts indicate that people should get married at age 20 and have sexual relations and how children could be brought into the sect. So I would believe that the sectarians were not celibate. But many scholars continue to believe that they were. Now, in this issue, the cemetery became very important because there was an argument about whether women were buried there or not. Now, in the graves that have actually been excavated, the preponderance is of men, and there are a small number of women and children. Unfortunately, for those of us who hold the non-celibate idea, some of the women recently were reclassified as Bedouin women, buried there in the 19th or early 20th century. And I participated two years ago in a, an examination of the cemetery, and that's actually being published right now, in which every single grave was mapped. 
And I learned at that time that it's really quite simple to know the difference between the Bedouin graves because they go, instead of going north-south, they go east-west. And it became very clear that we can completely differentiate these two types of graves. So for better or for worse, we can say that we only know as a fact of two women out of some we now know of about 50 graves. And we do know two definite women's graves. But the problem is we have no idea if what was, a, what was opened is or is not a fair sample. And this whole thing is awaiting a day when some kind of ground-penetrating radar that now can tell us where a grave is will be able to tell us the size of the bones. And when that happens, then we'll actually know how many men and how many women were buried there. Now, another item I just want to show you, because it's of interest, is the phylacteries, known in Hebrew as tefillin, which are the uh, black leather boxes bound on the arm and head, according to the traditional Jewish understanding of certain biblical commands. Now, these were found in Qumran, and this is a head phylactery, and it has four sections, as you can see, and the strap would have run through here, and when open up, this is the phylactery with the four sections of the text in it, and these come at Qumran in two varieties. One exactly the same as the ones that the rabbis commanded, which means that we think that these are the ones pertaining to the Pharisaic group that are the forerunners of the Talmudic rabbis, and another variety which has additional material inside the passages and which we believe to be evidence of the nature of the phylacteries which had some expanded biblical passages as found among these Qumran sectarians. So if nothing else, we have here the earliest phylacteries that at least can be proven to have been in use by Jews and we get a sense of what they looked like. But of course, for most people, the important finds of Qumran are the scrolls. But the reason I have taken you through the archaeology is to make clear before we start that the scrolls were placed into the caves by a group of people that apparently consisted of a few hundred Jews that ate and lived at the site. We know from the text that they also prayed and studied there as well as doing certain things to earn a living. And furthermore, that this group practiced strict purity laws as we can see from the ritual baths, that they ate communal meals together in that large dining room facility, and seem, in general, to have occupied the buildings that we have been investigating. The scrolls do testify, especially that material that was found already in the Cairo Geniza that we spoke of at the beginning, to the fact that groups of this sect were also scattered elsewhere in the country. Now, I want to begin by saying that vis-a-vis -vis the scrolls, there are three types of scrolls among the Qumran collection. And when I say scrolls now, I mean what would have been scrolls in antiquity, whether a full scroll today, as in the Isaiah scroll, or a fragmentary scroll. That is to say, we have first what we call group one is Bible. You have there parts of every book of the Hebrew scriptures except for the book of Esther. There's some kind of a debate about why that book isn't there. Some people think it wasn't in their Bible. Some people, including myself, because the book is quoted believe that it was part of the Bible, but it just doesn't survive by coincidence. Because to give you an example, for Ezra hyphen Nehemiah, which is really one book originally, the piece that survives is about two inches by three inches. So if when the Bedouin were loading stuff onto donkeys, something fell on the floor, or if somebody happened to drop a fragment in the scrollery of the museum, we would be saying that there is no copy of Esther. So I frankly have taken the view that since they quote it, they probably had it. 
But in any case, group one is Bible with no Esther. By the way, this is a good time to point out that despite some newspaper claims to the contrary, there is no New Testament at Qumran. The text that was said to be New Testament had five letters on one line, three on another. The only completely preserved word is the Greek word chi, which means and. And furthermore, in order to claim that it's the book of Mark, you have to restore the text to create a reading in the book of Mark, which is not attested in any manuscript whatsoever. So unfortunately, we don't have New Testament at Qumran. Now, the second group consists of what we call apocryphal texts with a small a, meaning books that are similar to biblical books, about biblical books, related to biblical books. These texts, like the biblical books, were not authored by the people who gathered these manuscripts at Qumran, and they were not necessarily copied there. They represent works that were read by Jews throughout the country. We now know this because texts just like this were found at Masada, which, as we mentioned before, was destroyed in 73 CE by the Romans. The third group is the real Qumran sectarian scrolls written by the sectarian group whom most scholars identify with the Essenes as described by Philo and Josephus. These scrolls include the particular religious teachings of the group, like predestination, which they believe in, all this light and darkness imagery. These documents also include all kinds of stuff about the scroll sect view of messianism, a whole variety of prayers and rituals and other things like that that are peculiar to this particular group of Jews, even if related to material known from elsewhere. All in all, of course, these documents as a whole give us the earliest biblical texts, as well as opening to us a wide library of materials, much of which we never knew. Now, to begin with the biblical material, the Isaiah scroll, known as the Great Isaiah Scroll, is an example of one of the types of biblical texts that exist at Qumran. On the one hand, it looks like what anybody would encounter who knows about a Torah scroll. It has the margin on the top, the margin on the bottom, which you can't see in the photo, would have been larger than the one on the top as is required. The stitching is typical as was done in those days and in Torah scrolls. You have the interlinear and intercolumnar ruling and the text hangs from the lines rather than the reverse. That is, it's not written on top of the line, but the letters hang from the line. Now in any case, this is an example of a biblical text which, while written according to the usual traditions for the Jewish biblical texts, displays a linguistic updating into a dialect of Hebrew that the Qumran sectarians used. Now, this text was side by side in the original seven scrolls with another Isaiah text known as Isaiah B. It is typical of biblical texts written that are used until today, the so-called Masoretic text the traditional text. And here we get to the $64,000 question that everybody always naively asks. Either the scrolls, Bibles are exactly the same as our Bible, or they're all different than our Bible. Well, it's more complicated. First of all, in terms of the actual meaning of the text, there's no difference in anything significant with our Bible. It does not say, thou shalt commit adultery, or thou shalt steal. No such luck. Ten Commandments are the Ten Commandments. In fact, all the 613 commandments and all the prophets and everything else from beginning to end. There are, however, linguistic differences and small differences in the textual readings. 
And these are to be expected in light of what we knew before from the Greek Bibles, the so-called Septuagint, from the Samaritan Bible, the so-called Northern Israelite version of the Bible. And what we now know in general is that biblical texts at this time did come in a variety of forms, although from my point of view, but I have very close colleagues and friends that don't agree with this, the dominant form was the one that later became the traditional form of the Bible, which is used in Hebrew until today. However, there are quite a, a number of very interesting textual variants and traditions to be studied in these biblical texts. Unfortunately, they do not answer the questions of composition. All they answer is questions about the state of the Bible hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after its composition, the state of its transmission in the second and first centuries BCE. Now, another really fascinating scroll is the so-called Psalm scroll. Eventually, this scroll was able to be opened up, and this is only a small piece of it. This is a scroll which shows the problem of what is a biblical scroll. Because in this document, we have an admixture of various non-biblical poems and prayers, beautiful texts, really beautiful texts, besides some of the biblical texts from the Psalms. And there has been a scholarly debate. I take the view, along with some other scholars, that this was a collection of prayer texts. Some other people think it's an example of a book of Psalms that had a different collection of Psalms than the one which is found in a regular Hebrew Bible. Some of you may know that the Catholic Bibles, by the way, have one extra psalm that is not found in the Hebrew Bibles, and actually that psalm is found here in Hebrew, in its Hebrew original, which was not previously known before. So this is a very, very wonderful text. And if it could be focused really, really well, you'd be able to see something that you'll see later on, that the divine name was written in the old Hebrew script. Now this is a fantastically interesting Leviticus scroll. This is almost the same as the Hebrew book of Leviticus that you'd find in a synagogue Torah scroll today, except two things. First, the script. You know that the Jews originally had an old Hebrew script that they abandoned during the Babylonian exile. So that by about 400 BCE, they were using a different script, what's today called the square or Jewish script. It's what most people expect if you see a Hebrew newspaper or something like that, let alone a Torah scroll. Now, Previous to that, there was another script, which is more angular, made for writing on stone, as opposed to the script that's used now, which was made for writing on papyrus or skin or something like that. So anyhow, this old Hebrew script is used on a few Bible manuscripts, and you have it on this Leviticus manuscript. What's interesting about this Leviticus manuscript is that it's almost the same as our Bible, but there's one tendency here that you see in a lot of Qumran texts. They couldn't stand duplication. Now, you know... We joked before about thou shalt not commit adultery or thou shalt commit adultery. Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, each one contains a list of forbidden sexual relations, consanguineous marriages, that's marriage to your family, and forms of adultery. Now, the guy who copied this text couldn't stand the idea that there were two lists. He didn't understand. What do you need to waste, uh, you know, why waste some parchment? Why waste some ink? So he made one list. He brought it all together. Other than that, it's almost the same. But this shows a tendency that we have in some of these scrolls to actually improve upon the biblical text, if you could say such a thing. Now, another interesting thing about this manuscript, if you look at the bottom of this manuscript, you notice what happens when you put a manuscript in a cave. And what happened to this manuscript was that it deteriorated. But you see these little patterns of deterioration? If you then rip those up into little pieces by by stacking it in the order of the size of these little tongues on the bottom, 
you'd be able to figure out how it was rolled up in antiquity and reconstruct the order. Now for the Bible, we don't need to do that, but that's how we reconstruct the order of many, many fragments of broken scrolls. Now here is a little piece of a text in really fragmentary form that we've already met. Because at day one in scrolls research, they already had this manuscript that had come in two versions from the Cairo Geniza with which I opened this talk. Now that's a document which tells the history of the sectarian group and many of its teachings. It basically sets forth the idea that after the temple was destroyed, the Jewish people went astray, and only one group, who eventually became the sectarians, went down the right path. That group, we're told, would be led by the priests who descended from Zadok, one of the high priests from the time of Solomon. And this document sets forth a whole bunch of incorrect ways in which the Pharisees and others have gone astray in matters of Jewish law, like permitting marrying one's niece, which the Pharisees permitted, but you can't do in this country because Christianity did not allow it, and the Dead Sea sect didn't allow it. Maybe that's one of our heritages from this group, I don't know. But in any case, right, the document then goes on to give us a code of Jewish laws pertaining to the Sabbath, oaths, testimony, purity and impurity, all types of subjects of Jewish law, and we now have this document in 10 manuscripts from Qumran proving that the one that had been found by Schechter in those medieval manuscripts was truly from the very same collection. Very important and found among the first Dead Sea Scrolls is a text I already alluded to you about, which is the one known as the Rule of the Community or Manual of Discipline. This is the document that begins by setting out certain basic principles of the sect, for example, their belief in absolute predestination, and of how the world was divided into good and evil people, how all of this is preordained, how the division is not only here on Earth, but in some kind of cosmic forces, where there is a prince of lights leading the good cosmic forces, and Belial, as it's known in Hebrew, or Belial in English, which is a kind of Satan with a small s, who leads the forces of evil. And here, by the way, as you look at the manuscript, you can see the corrections between the lines, which is just an interesting feature about this text. This is the document which also sets forth the rules for joining the group. There were several stages of an initiate and exams that were given, and you eventually became able to touch the pure solid food of the group, only later the liquid food of the group, which was more susceptible to ritual impurity, and only finally would you be permitted totally into the ritual meals of the group. If you transgressed, you would be demoted in accord with the same scheme in obviously reverse order. Now, this document is also preserved in numerous manuscripts, and it's quite clear that it was a very important document for the history and the life of the sectarian group. It is the document which led initially to the comparison with Josephus' discussions of the Essenes. The Essenes are a group, we do not know the meaning of the Hebrew word if it's Hebrew, because it doesn't appear in the scrolls, and if it's Greek, Essenoi or Essaioi, we don't know what that means either. There are about 25 theories which proves that we don't know. And that being the case, I won't recount them for you. Suffice it to say, however, that Josephus describes a group which in certain ways is quite similar to the Qumran sect. What led to the conclusion that the group at Qumran must be the Essenes, however, is Pliny the Elder, who incorrectly talking about the period after the destruction of the temple, after 70 CE, says that the Essenes live above Masada. 
excuse me, I'm sorry, above En Gedi, sorry, above En Gedi. And this is north of En Gedi. And therefore, many scholars came to the conclusion that this group must be the Essenes. That is a possibility, but we will come a little bit later to discuss the problems with that theory and some necessary modifications. Now, another very, very interesting text shown here before it was taken apart is known as the Hodayot, or Thanksgiving scroll. This is not a set of prayers to be recited at your Thanksgiving dinner. Rather, what it is, is a bunch of poems that begin, I give thanks unto you because, and it sets forth various ideas of sectarian ideology. It's generally believed that a sectarian official, known as the teacher of righteousness, may have been the author of this text. The teacher of righteousness came into a leadership role in the sect some 20 years after the sectarian group itself came into being, and that is a matter to which we will return a little bit later, but my view is that it came into being in approximately 152 BCE, 150, whatever you want to say, and I'll explain that a little bit later. But the point that I want to make right now is that this document also follows the same predestination aspect it also has in it a sense of a kind of asceticism and a kind of limitation of the physical, which is not typical of Phariseeism, but which is typical later on of Christianity. Now, since at the same time, the manual of discipline that we talked about before seems to describe a communal group, it's generally been pointed out with some validity that there are parallels between, on the one hand, these ascetic teachings, and also some structural parallels with the Church of Acts, as described in the New Testament. So that is an area of valid parallels. The thing we have to be careful of is not to fall into the circular reasoning of interpreting Josephus in light of the scrolls, the scrolls in light of Josephus, and then going in the other direction, and the scrolls plus Josephus in light of the New Testament, and the New Testament in light of the scrolls plus Josephus, which is gyroscopic reasoning rather than circular reasoning, we have to keep all these things separate. But there are in these areas that we spoke of so far some very good parallels. These are beautiful, beautiful poems, let me tell you. Uh, when they're written in, into, when they're read in, in a good translation, they're very beautiful. Now, a very important scroll especially to me because of the fact that I am uh, working on a commentary on this document, is known as a temple scroll. And since we've been talking for a while here and people might be tending to get tired, I could interrupt with a story. You remember that from 48 to 67, the scrolls that were in Jordan, which were languishing, basically not being published at any kind of a rate, right, that the Jordanians were controlling the whole deal. In May of 1967, shortly before the outbreak of the 67 war, the Six-Day War, as it's called, Kondo tried to, to sell an American professor a scroll under a bridge somewhere in Beirut. And apparently it was already known that that scroll existed because in 1960, Yigal Yadin had been approached by a fellow named Reverend Joe Urig. Now, Reverend Joe Urig was the first guy to give Jerry Falwell a job on the radio in Virginia. Urig told Yadin that he could give him the scroll if he, Yadin, would give him $10,000 as a deposit. Yadin gave the $10,000, got a few fragments, and never saw the scroll. In 1967, 
Yadin, as a former general of the Israeli armed forces, was able to arrange for some intelligence agents to go immediately into Bethlehem as soon as it was uh, taken under Israeli control, seek out Kondo, and recover from him, and he was eventually paid $108,000, this scroll, the Temple Scroll. In some columns, such as here, it's fragmentary, but it's a 66-column-long scroll, approximately 9 meters long, which is a retelling of the book of Exodus, Leviticus, and parts of Numbers in Deuteronomy, spelling out how a Jewish temple should be built of gargantuan dimensions, spelling out rules for the Jewish polity, how the society should be organized, and for all types of sacrifices and other issues. Now, this document itself seems to be a reformist document. And when it was published by Yadin, it became very clear that it seemed to be at odds with the other sectarian documents. It did not have all the invective, calling everybody else a liar and saying that nobody else was living according to the Torah and that everybody else would be punished in the end of days. It seemed to be a much more irenic, much more peaceful document and seemed even in some matters to be at odds with the other scrolls. Now, in any case, this document was analyzed by Yadin as having many, many arguments against the later Talmudic traditions. That is to say that it seemed that what Yadin was saying was that this group was arguing against the Pharisees, who are the forerunners of the Talmudic rabbis, and therefore that this text was basically implicitly aimed against them. There was a big debate about the role of this text, which was not resolved until 1984. In 1984, when the Israeli authorities had still done nothing about the problem of the unpublished scrolls, the problem had basically been ignored since 67 to 84, there was a conference on biblical archaeology. At that conference, Elisha Kimron got up and gave a paper about this document known as the MMT document. This document itself shocked everybody to such an extent that it stimulated much of the call to get the rest of the scrolls published, which eventually led to the restructuring of the publication team and to the fact that today all the scrolls really are published. This document is a letter from a group of people to the high priestly establishment in Jerusalem, probably written, in my view, in about 152 BCE, when Jonathan the Maccabee, the brother of Judah the Maccabee, the famous person from the Hanukkah story, was the high priest and ruler. And the authors of this letter assert that these people are following a whole bunch of wrong rulings on Jewish law and say that they have left the temple because of this and will only come back if these things are reversed. Now, my analysis of this, which is shared by quite a number of scholars, but is not universally shared, is that what happened was that the Maccabean priests kicked out the previous Sadakite priests related to the Sadducees, that priestly sect that we know from the time, because they had been associated with the Hellenistic activity that had led to the Maccabean revolt and even led to the bringing of idolatry into the temple. However, there were some pious members of this Sadakite Sadducee group who left Jerusalem, formed the Dead Sea sect, and wrote this document, which, whether it was sent or not, I don't know, as a letter to the establishment asserting that
that the establishment was off base and that they would only again return to its fold if they would accept their readings on matters of Jewish law. Now the point that I want to make about this which is so important is that from it we learn that the Jewish law rulings are the rulings of the Sadducees as we know them from the Mishnah and the Talmud. This has raised serious question about the Essene hypothesis. Now a lot of people incorrectly have accused me of just saying the sectarians of the Sadducees. I never said that or wrote that, but let me try and repeat to you what my view is. We really have two choices. We could say these guys have nothing to do with the Essenes. That is not too likely. The most likely possibility is that what we are learning here is that Essene is a term for a bunch of different types of groups and that this particular group that Pliny terms Essenes is a group of people that stem from Sadducees slash Sadducee priests who protested the Hasmonean takeover of the temple when they actually took it over by 152 BCE. And furthermore, it seems most logical that those Hasmoneans, as we call them, or Maccabees, made common cause with the Pharisees so that the alignment was Maccabees and Pharisees, Jerusalem establishment, our guys, call them Essenes, call them Sadakites, whatever you want, out of the establishment, protesting, and therefore maintaining the views on Jewish law, which would be the same as those of the Sadducees, as we know them from the New Testament, from the Mishnah, and that is the Mishnah, which is the part of the Talmud, and from Josephus and elsewhere. Now I want to go into a few other significant areas of these texts. There is a whole genre of biblical interpretation known as psharim. And this, by the way, is a place where you can see that the old Hebrew script, where is it over here, is used for the writing of the divine name. But the point I want to make about this type of literature is that this is contemporizing biblical interpretation. This is the type of thing that you might recognize if you open the radio on Sunday morning and a preacher tells you that the book of Ezekiel has foretold the Iraq war. That is contemporizing interpretation. But here it's much more sophisticated. According to the sectarians, the teacher of righteousness or some other teacher would correctly interpret the biblical prophets and the significance of the words of the biblical prophets did not apply to their own time but rather really apply to the time of the sect. And so there are these share texts for quite a number of the prophets as well as parts of the Psalms, and they argue that the words of the prophets are actually coming to be at the time of the sectarians. Now this also is something that seems to be common with early Christianity. It's found in the New Testament. This is that which is to fulfill. And it's in contrast to the fact that the Dead Sea Scrolls are loaded in the Temple Scroll and in the so-called Sadakite fragments or Damascus document with biblical interpretation of the legal type, which is familiar from later Jewish sources. And so I can explain this to you now because it's a good time to make this point, that one of the things that seems to have happened is that the way these groups relate to the later Jewish and Christian traditions is through a process of sorting out of details, not a linear relationship. It's not that the Dead Sea sect became the Christians, as some of these popular books would have it, or that the Pharisees became the rabbis. What it is is that ideas from these groups, of which we only have a partial picture, filter down to one or another group 
in differing degrees and in differing ways. And that's why if you would make a diagram of the influences, it would be very complicated with lines going all over the page, all over the place. And any type of simplistic interpretation, which again satisfies the public when somebody writes one of these silly books, will not do justice to the facts. Now I have been arguing for years that you cannot understand the scrolls properly unless you get away from this notion of seeing it all in light of later Christianity. I'm going to argue in a book that I hope will be finished in a year or two, but maybe not, that the scrolls once understood in that way have much more to say about Christianity than the way in which it was done before. I made a kind of nasty formulation of that once that somebody didn't like and asked me not to print, but I'll repeat it anyhow, which was that whoever steals the scrolls from the Jewish people steals them also from the Christians. Because the true meaning of the scrolls for the history of Christianity is in reconstructing the Judaism before and understanding that certain tendencies which we used to think were not Jewish are Jewish. And that is the case with this type of contemporizing interpretation. We now realize that it was prominent among some Jews at this time. Whereas from Talmudic sources, one would have thought that it was really a very minor player in the world of biblical interpretation. Now, these documents are also important historically because the Pesher documents, in telling us that they refer to what's going on at the time of the sectarians, have all types of references to the liar, who's some kind of a leader of the Pharisees, and the wicked priest, who's a leader of the priests, and the teacher of righteousness who led the sect. And there aren't names, for the most part, in these documents. But they set up for us a whole cast of characters who, if only we knew their real names. But in any case, I can tell you that the wicked priest is one of the Hasmonean or Maccabean priests. It's got to be either Alexander Janaeus 70, uh, from 104 to 76 or John Hyrcanus 134 to 104 BCE. And that's really a setting for all this stuff. That period of the Maccabean Empire that basically continued until the Romans conquered Israel in 63 BCE. Don't get that confused with the revolt. They conquered Israel in 63 BCE. The Jews revolted in 66 to 73 CE, or as it's commonly known, AD. Okay. Now, also among these texts I mentioned before are the so-called apocryphal type documents, or things which are close to the Bible. This is an example of a piece of Enoch. Enoch was known in some Greek fragments, but in a rather faithful translation into Ethiopic, Gez, the language medieval Ethiopic, essentially. Now, this text now survives at Qumran in quite a number of Aramaic manuscripts, which are the original, but only for four out of five parts of the text. Because one of the parts is the part that mentions the Son of Man. And even though Son of Man comes from the book of Daniel, Son of Man as a messianic term is Christian. And the part of Enoch, which has the Son of Man, is post-Christian. The other parts are pre-Christian. Now, everyone here should know who Enoch is. He's the guy in Genesis 4 who is not anymore because the Lord took him up into heaven. Or I should, I interpret it a little, the Lord took him up. So if the Lord took him up, you can imagine what people said about him. So Enoch becomes the hero of this whole set of little texts which tell about how Enoch went up to heaven and God gave him a tour of heaven and he knew all of the natural order and astronomy and the calendar and all this other stuff and he could reveal those secrets to human beings also and so this is the beginning of a whole Enoch tradition that continues really for a long time. Also to be mentioned 
are two other very important texts we covered in the original. Ecclesiasticus, otherwise known as Ben Sira, not to be confused with Ecclesiastes, the book of Kohelet, one of the five scrolls. But Ben Sira is also called by the, Christ, by the Catholic Sirach. This document in its original Hebrew was known in some medieval manuscripts. The whole thing was only known in Greek. Now we have parts of it in Hebrew from Qumran and parts also in a scroll from Masada. And the Book of Jubilees, which retells the Book of Genesis using the Jubilee year chronology and arguing that the patriarchs observed all the commandments. That, by the way, is a typically Talmudic Jewish midrashic idea. And that book has been found in some 10 manuscripts in uh, Qumran. These are written in Hebrew. It's got some beautiful passages. One of my favorites is that it describes the angels. When Abraham was being asked to sacrifice his son, it describes how the tears of the angels were dripping down into the eyes of Isaac, which is why he eventually, according to the Bible, became blind. That's just a sort of one of my favorite little pieces in that, pa in that book. Now, another very important document is something called the Genesis Apocryphon. This is an Aramaic text, which also retells the Bible. And it retells most of Genesis, but unfortunately, it has not fared too well in terms of survival. But it tells the stories of the Bible with many extra details. And here we can see the kinds of dip details that typify the Jewish Midrash, Jewish interpretation that adds all types of things in the kind of uh, in interstices, the spaces in the biblical narrative. And this is a beautiful example of that whole phenomenon which we call rewritten Bible. Because in these documents, they would rewrite the biblical story, adding all these legendary details, as opposed to the Talmudic rabbis who kept them secret, se separate. Sorry. Now I want to go briefly into the subject of messianism. There are quite a number of documents from the Qumran sect that speak about messianism, one of them being the scroll of the war of the sons of light against the sons of darkness. There are two points of view regarding messianism and Judaism. One is that the messianic era could be brought about by the slow improvement of the world until God would send his redeemer. The other one is that there would be a catastrophe because the world was about to blow up. And at that time, God would somehow have to intervene, deus ex machina, and redeem the world before being destroyed. The latter type is what these sectarians believed in. It's the idea of the war of Gog and Magog or Armageddon and all this. Now, the idea here is that the, would, there would be a war of the sons of light, the sectarians, against first all the other Jews, then all the other nations. After they destroyed everybody, because everybody else is no good, they would come up to Jerusalem to share in the Messianic era. Now, most of us probably don't look forward to a Messianic era in which everybody else in the world is dead but us. But in case you're bothered by this, I have to tell you something very strange about this text. The author of this text interspersed beautiful poetry between his description of a schematized war. This poetry speaks of the opposite vision. It speaks of all of the nations of the world coming up to God's holy mountain to worship the Lord. It speaks of the Isaianic prophecy of a messianic era in which the whole world shares because everybody truly repents. So either someone had second thoughts 
or somehow or another the guy maybe was divulging his true views, maybe we might like to think that. But in any case, this is a fascinating document related to Greco-Roman military manuals because there's a lot of detail in here about the use of all types of trumpets and swords and military units. Fascinating document. One of the seven original scrolls, by the way, to be found by that Bedouin boy. Now I want to show you some funny things about the problem I was talking about, about Christianization. You don't have to be Christian, by the way, to Christianize the scrolls. This is a document which is called 4Q Testimonia. It would have been completed had this little piece survived. It's a bunch of biblical verses that support the idea that there will come an eventual redemption. Two Orthodox rabbis in L.A., in the L.A. Times, excuse me, they came from Philadelphia. I don't want to blame L.A. I blame the L.A. Times, but not the city. They announced that this document had the name of Jesus in it and that they had found the name of Jesus in the scrolls. Needless to say, they got tremendous, tremendous PR. Now, we've got to find it um, the, right there. Yud, Shin, Vav, Ayin, the same spelling that's on the now broken and now famous ossuary that may or may not be the ossuary of James, the brother of Jesus, where it says, brother of, in Aramaic, Ahoy de Yeshua. So they announced, hey, we got the name of Jesus right there. The problem is that these guys obviously did not go to fifth grade in a Jewish day school or teach fifth grade before they were ordained as rabbis. Because in fifth grade, you study the book of Joshua. And in the book of Joshua, it says, as it does here, at that time, right, when Joshua completed praising God, so he then said, this is right after the destruction of the city of Jericho, cursed be the one who will build this city. With his firstborn, he will uh, construct it. And with the life of his secondborn, will he put up its gates? So this Yeshua is Yehoshua, Joshua, the biblical Joshua, and there is no Jesus in this text. What can you do? But here is a text which is, which is truly important for the question of Christianity in the scrolls. And this is a document, although it says here pseudo-Daniel, Daniel, it's often called Aramaic Apocalypse, and this is a document which in a section which is not restored, you might not realize it, everything to the right of this line, the light stuff is restored, the dark stuff over here is actual text. And this document actually seems to be referring to a messianic figure. Taking off on Daniel, it has the prophet come before the king, bow down and tell him a certain prophecy, and then ask the, prophet, the, 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 the king, why is your face so disturbed, why are you downcast? To that, the prophet, or whoever he is, Daniel apparently, goes on in this apocryphal text, and it's written in Aramaic, which by the way, there's a rule of thumb in Qumran studies. Aramaic is from 3rd and 2nd centuries BCE. It's not, we don't have time to go into it, but that's the rule of thumb. And this document has a description of what most scholars think is the Messianic era. And in it, there is a figure who is called the Son of God, Bar Elohim in Aramaic, who is the Messiah. This, of course, may lead to the conclusion, I say may because it's one text, that there were some Jews in the pre-Christian era who did term a messianic figure as a son of God. Needless to say, all kinds of crazy things have been said about this, like that it's about Jesus, which of course is impossible, it was written in the third century BC. That it either proves or disproves. See, all that kind of nonsense comes in. 
But this is a text which does seem to give us an indication of what may have been a possible messianic designation at that time. There is another view about this text, by the way, which is that it's really some kind of a ruler who's boasting and saying, well, I'm a big shot, I'm a son of God. That other view is just entertained by a few scholars, but there is such a view. Now I want to show you a very, very controversial document, which is known in the field as the pierced Messiah text. The problem is, again, there's no pierced Messiah. This is one of ten fragments of a document which is closely associated with the war scroll. Now, I didn't tell you before that they assumed that the Great War would be against the Romans. Because even before the Romans came in 63 BCE, it was clear that Rome would have to be defeated. They understood the last battle of Daniel to be against Rome, and they were convinced that Rome would be destroyed by them in the end of days. Now, this document, as I say, is one of ten fragments which describes how the leader of the sect pursues and defeats the leader of the Romans. However, the people who published this text, they translated it as saying that he, the, the uh, leader of the Romans, will kill the leader of the sect, the prince of the congregation, the sprout of David. And then they claimed, therefore, that this proved that the scrolls it looked forward to a pierced Messiah. Now, this, of course, is not true because they did not know Hebrew grammar. And obviously, I can't go through this now because I can't assume Hebrew on the part of people here. But after this word over here, which should be correctly read, right, he, namely the prince of the congregation, killed him, namely the head of the Romans, if it would be translated the other way, we would be missing a direct object indicator that we would need if it meant they killed the head of the sect who was the Messiah. So actually, there is no pierced Messiah text, but we can't do anything about that. It'll be called that forever in the popular literature. And down at the bottom of the sect, of the scroll, sorry, in this little piece is the remnant of the words, corpses of the Romans. Now, what I've been showing you in the last few minutes is that some of the controversial statements that were made about particular scrolls that were supposed to say particular things about Christianity which some scholars thought would either prove Christianity or other scholars thought would disprove Christianity. That these are, and I've just given you a few examples, basically nonsense. There is a small number of very significant parallels with the New Testament that have been found. There is a wider question, which I hope to work on myself in this volume that I've begun working on, but I'm only at the beginning, which is the question of context and contrast. It's as important to use the scrolls to know the context in which Christianity comes as to be able to find parallels. And it's as important to contrast the scroll set with Christianity, to be able to understand what Christianity essentially came up with and what it inherited. And a more balanced view avoids these kind of linear pin-the-tail-on-the-donkey type attempts to find the parallel, and rather instead seeks to use this material to cast a kind of wide picture of what Judaism was like in this period so that it can properly be understood how the Jewish element feeds into Christianity and also properly un be understood how the Second Temple Judaism helps to explain the later development of Talmudic Judaism. And all of that means, if we look at that in the way that I'm proposing, that the scrolls do become a major part and contribute in a major way to our understanding of our civilization. But done the other way, it just becomes a kind of hunt for parallels, a sort of treasure hunt among the scrolls. 
I want to show you a few last things. Some mystical literature. There's beautiful poetry in the scrolls. This is a text called the uh, Songs of the Sabbath Sacrifices. Beautiful mystical poems describing the way the angels praise God in heaven. And these documents were to be recited as part of the Sabbath liturgy. These have a lot in common with what is called the Kedushah hymns, part of the Jewish liturgy. And these poems read like the later post-biblical Hebrew poetry that has become really the mainstay of Jewish liturgy, especially on the High Holy Days. Going along with the same kind of sort of mystical stuff is a text called the Book of Mysteries. I actually edited 125 pages of these broken pieces as part of my contribution to getting the scrolls published. And these documents keep telling us that you have to study and teach the mysteries of God's creation, which means the natural world, the mysteries of the histories of the Jews, the mysteries of the human life, all these things. And it's really interesting how they tell you that this esoteric stuff should be revealed. There's only one problem. The way the document is preserved, we don't have the mysteries. So we can't really follow through on what they tell us to teach them. But there's a lot of very interesting material in these documents nonetheless. And this, by the way, is not the worst. To understand what it meant to publish the Dead Sea Scrolls, for $40, which is a real discount, because usually these volumes are about 120, they are selling a several hundred pages of fragments that have at the most one word, and in many cases no words, which have been reproduced and published to prove that the team is not hiding scrolls with anything on them. And of course, the anything would of course be the name of Jesus, because that's what everybody claimed that the publication team was hiding. Now I want finally to just speak briefly about something called the Copper Scroll. This is a rather amazing document. It's written on two copper plates, and it was found in Cave 3 at Qumran. And when opened up, it was a very complicated process. They had to saw it, and it's letters that have been embossed by someone who didn't exactly know what he was embossing because there are many mistakes. One of my students wrote a 1,200-page dissertation on this. It sets out 66 places with buried treasures. The only problem is that, of course, these treasures can no longer be found, but the real treasure of the Copper Scroll is the treasure of the Hebrew language because it points to the transition from the biblicizing Hebrew, which is found in the other Dead Sea Scrolls, to Mishnaic Hebrew, which is a later dialect, which is also known from some documents that we have from the period of the Bar Kokhba War, from 132 to 5, the so-called Second Jewish Revolt. But nonetheless, this document raises many different questions. What were the treasures described in it? Are they treasures of the Second Temple that may have been hidden in preparation for the great assault of the Romans? Are they some other treasure that we don't know about? I recently appeared on a BBC documentary explaining why it was totally nutty to claim, as a very nice gentleman does, two things have nothing to do with one another. Nutty theories can sometimes be said by very nice people. Um, I appeared in this documentary to keep explaining why these are not the treasures of the Jews from Egypt that they took with them, that they got from Akhnatan, who according to this theory, you know, and Freud, Moses, and monotheism, and all the rest, was somehow or another the originator of Judaism, you know? And we try and explain, like, this has got nothing to do with ancient Egypt. It doesn't do much good, because as I said to you before, sometimes any theory of Dead Sea Scrolls is considered to be as good as any other. Nonetheless, what I want to tell you about this document then is that it's an unbelievable treasure for the study of the Hebrew language, and that's perhaps its most uh, important aspect.
Well, what we have in these scrolls is really a new library of texts from the period that we call the Second Temple period. Most importantly, these give us a window on Judaism in the second and first centuries. This is the period when, before we know it, Christianity would be developing, and when the transition would take place in Judaism from the Second Temple Judaism into what we commonly call Rabbinic Judaism, and Judaism after the revolt and the destruction of the Temple in 70 would become standardized, Christianity would go off to develop into a separate religion as we know it. I haven't been able tonight to give you more than a survey of a survey of a survey. When people ask what's important about the Dead Sea Scrolls, it takes volumes to say what's really important about the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's like speaking about Shakespeare and expecting to be able to characterize it in a few sentences or even in a 45-minute lecture. What I hope I have done is to give you some sense of how important this new discovery, not so new on one from one point of view, 50 years old, but new from the point of view that now it's only finally all been let out to the public. So I want to give you some sense of how important this discovery is for understanding what really is the essential development of Western religion, the background for Christianity, and the manner in which rabbinic Judaism develops out of its earlier predecessors. Thank you very much.